Well, again, good morning. Glad to be able to, uh, to share with you this morning. I'm excited to be able to be here. Uh, I love this time of the year. Um, just the, the weather turning and uh, things starting to get chillier, blankets and all that kind of stuff. I've seen some, uh, seen some posts on social media that say like, you know, for all you weirdos who like your fall, your cold, your wet, your miserable gray, you can have it. Well, I'll take it because I love it. It's awesome. And uh, so a lot of times this time of year, we, uh, we uh, tend to travel. We've had a lot of people that have been out of town. And uh, so if you went out of town and you're back, welcome back. If you're watching us online, uh, whether you are gone or not, uh, just welcome. Thanks for, uh, for tuning in. Uh, today is part two of a three-part series on the book of Second Peter. And uh, last week, Doug started us off. He kicked us off. He did a great job, and uh, he didn't pay me to say that. And so if you missed it, I do want to encourage you to go back. We have those available online. You can go back and and check that out. Uh, Last week, Doug did a really great job of visually explaining the relationship between faith and work. And if I could take everything that he said in 30 plus minutes and summarize it down into one sentence, I I think it, it would be something like this. We don't work to become saved. We work because we are saved. Now, like I said, one of the things that really connected with me is that I love, I love uh, to, to have visual aids. That's just the way that my mind tends to process things. I don't understand it unless I can see it very uh, physically. And so he did an awesome job with that. We're going to use some visuals this morning, too. Uh, now, if you're a note taker, uh, I want to encourage you to uh, get that thing clicked and buckle up because we're going to go pretty fast. Um, that's also how my brain kind of tends to work. So, uh, but yeah, if you want to take, take notes along, feel, uh, feel, free to, feel free to do that. So whereas last week we looked at the relationship between faith and work, this week today what we're going to be doing is examining the relationship between grace and truth. There are four major biographies of Jesus uh, in the New Testament, and they were all pretty much written by people that were eyewitnesses of, uh, of his life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven. And in one of those, uh, one of his disciples named John wrote a, a book in the Bible called John. It's a history of Jesus, a biography about him. And at the very beginning, you know how sometimes in books, you uh, try to like summarize what you're getting ready to talk about the whole rest of the book. You'll see that sometimes. John does that in chapter one. And uh, listen to the words that he says about his master, his friend, Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now that's the, that's the phrase that we're going to home in on the whole, the whole day today. So if you just remember grace and truth, that's the thing that we're going to be looking at today. Why? What does it mean? Why does it matter? What does that look like when we live it out in our lives? So here's where our first visual aid kind of comes from, okay? I'm going to just kind of talk you through our process, uh, my process of thinking and understanding about the relationship between grace and truth. Here's what I used to think. I used to think that uh, grace and truth was uh, judged or determined by the scale of balances, scales of balance approach, right? Where if, if you really wanted to have more grace, inversely, you're going to have 
to have less truth. And in the same way, if you want to have more truth, it's going to, by nature, become less gracious. But there's a problem with this approach. And that, that problem is that in order to, it says that in order to show one, you have to forsake the other. If you want to forsake the, or show the other, you have to forsake the one. And that's not the way I think that the Bible paints the relationship between grace and truth. The key word that's used here when we think about, and you've maybe even said this yourself, is how do I balance, how do I balance grace and truth? But here's the problem is that when you try to balance grace and truth, you have to end up choosing either grace or truth. As I look at the Old Testament, as I, or excuse me, as I look at the New Testament and the early church, and I look at the way that it developed in the, in the letters that were written to the church as it was growing after Jesus went back into heaven, as I look at the history books and see what that looked like, and as I look at the church of today, if I had to, if I had to put a top five list of major things that cause the church issues ever since its inception, I think it's this either or mentality. That's at least on the top five, maybe top three. I don't know. Maybe it's the top problem that we face. So that's why it's so important for us to understand as we look at this book of Second Peter that tells us about kingdom life. How do we balance, or maybe we don't balance at all, grace and truth? Because it's not meant to be either or. So I've thought a lot about this. And um, so I think that maybe I came up with a better analogy. So as, as I developed from, okay, I don't think it's grace or truth either, or I think, it's, I think it's maybe grace and truth where it's like two separate pitchers, all right? So imagine that I have two pitchers, one's full of grace and the other is full of truth. And when uh, John chapter 1, 14 talks about Jesus, he's like the vessel in the middle and it says that he is full of grace and truth, and maybe this is what it looks like, right? This is, he was like 50-50, and, and, it, and he was full. He was full of grace and truth. But do you see the flaw with this analogy? It's basically just the scales of balance approach with a better paint job. See, because if you separate the two elements that have been poured into this single cup, you see that it's really neither full of grace nor of truth. So here's what I've landed on when it comes to understanding the relationship between truth and grace. Instead of thinking about them as either or, what if we looked at it as both and? That's the language that's used in John 1, 14. It doesn't say that he was full of grace and truth. It says he was full of grace and full of truth. It much more closely matches the examples. In the New Testament, when things are humming along, when the church is doing what it was meant to do, when people are being pointed most clearly to Jesus. You see, Jesus was full of both grace and truth. So as followers of Jesus, this is our goal. To also be full of grace and to be full of truth. Things get messy when we think of grace and truth as scales of balance. 
But when followers of Jesus adopt a both and mentality, when we feel like we could pursue a likeness of Jesus that is filled with both, that's when I think that the world sees him most clearly. So we're going to take just a few minutes in the word this morning. We're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about the truth. And we're going to look inwardly at how we can both work to become like Jesus in these areas, filled with both. Don't be confused. Our relationship with God begins with grace. In Romans chapter 5, Paul puts it clearly when he's writing to the church. He's making the summary of the gospel. That's what the book of Romans is. And he says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See that phrase in green? Notice that it doesn't say, once we cleaned up our act, Christ died for us. It doesn't say, after we proved ourselves to be worthy, Christ died for us. It doesn't say, once we've hit that threshold where we're just above the classroom average of morality, then Christ died for us. No, it was while we were yet sinners. Sometimes we we get this relationship with God wrong, and we we think we've got to earn it. We think that we can earn it. And the best that we can do in in trying to be good on the outside and hoping that it seeps in on the inside is just behavior modification. But what happens when nobody's looking? What happens when you're not changed on the inside? It's only a matter of time. We can't do it on our own, not by our own power or our spirit or our will. Paul later talks about like, hey, if anybody, if anybody went pretty far down that road, it was me. And I consider that all garbage in comparison to trusting in Jesus. See, this isn't about behavior modification where change comes from the outside in. Because when we grasp the reality that the foundation of our relationship with God is built on a bedrock of grace, it changes us from the inside out. It's like Doug talked about last week. We can only become more like Jesus on the outside when we've been changed by him on the inside. Of course, we're going to face peaks and valleys in our overall walk, in our faithfulness, in our obedience. But over time, as you take a zoomed out view, you'll see that we become more and more like him. And here's another good bit of good news when it comes to a relationship with God that's built on grace. In Romans chapter 8, Paul again writes, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, there's this gift that's been offered to all of us. Forgiveness, salvation in Him. And once we've accepted that gift. None of these things, there's some pretty serious things on that list. None of these things can separate us from his love. But, especially when we're young in our faith and understanding, 
This raises an important and sometimes confusing question. If we live in grace, then why does the truth even matter? Listen, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, so why does it matter how it is that I live? Let me, let me, um, let me share an, an analogy with you. The Bible tells us that we've been adopted into the family of God. So let's, let's make an analogy where imagine yourself as an orphan and there's this father that comes and he says, hey, listen, I want you to, I, I have this offer for you. I want you to join my family. And you do. And you go through all the paperwork and the judge and the cake and the balloons and the party and it's all official. It's there. Your inheritance is secure. You get to share in all of that. Do you then just go, all right, thanks, Go do your own thing? Or what happens when that loving father says, hey, I think you shouldn't play in traffic. Like for us as adults, as, as more mature people, I hope, uh, that makes sense, right? Like it's not, it's not, hey, you shouldn't play in traffic or else you're out of the will. It's, I love you. I want what's best for you. I'm telling you, you don't want to play in traffic. Oh, but but it looks so fun. It seems so nice. All my other friends are doing it, right? This is the relationship that we have. When we're adopted into the family of God, when we've accepted that gift, we continue to follow the truth. Why does the truth matter? Well, I'll tell you why. It matters because the truth leads us to a better way of life. It's time for us as followers of Jesus to stop thinking about God's truth and the guidance of his word as, as being finished with the phrase, or else. Follow me in this way, or else. Do this, or else. I'm telling you, you don't want to do that, or else. It's this const- it's not, he's not constantly trying us to make sure whether we're going to be maintained in the will, part of the family of God. What if instead we thought of his truth as ending with this tagline, do this because I love you and because I want what's best for you. And I see things from a whole different plane, from a higher perspective, and I know that the way that these things turn out if you follow their logical end. The truth leads us to a better way of life. There's another letter in the New Testament called Titus. And it provides one of the clearest examples of the relationship between grace and truth, just in a few sentences. And as we read it, I want to see if you notice both of these elements being fully present. It says this, Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You see both things there? It's the grace that he offers to us that allows us to escape the passions, and the downfalls that we face in this world. 
It's Christ who gave himself up for us to redeem us, to help us to know and to be eager to do what we know he's called us to do. Grace changes us from the inside out. And truth leads us to a better life. Grace plus truth equals genuine love. When we are full of grace and full of truth, that's when the world sees Jesus living in and through us. So you're thinking, okay, that's nice. We just spent the last 15 minutes for you to end up telling us we should be like Jesus. Real original, right? But I don't want to just be vague. So let's unpack that a little bit more and be specific about what it looks like to be full of grace and full of truth. Or actually, maybe, maybe if I could take a step back, let's try it this way. Sometimes it helps us to understand what something is by first identifying what it isn't. Here's a couple examples. If I were to ask you to define, hey, what is light? You'd have a hard time using words to describe it other than, well, it's not dark. Same way with hot. What does hot mean? Well, it's when it's not cold. It's like the opposite of that. Or what about dry and wet, right? Like, so it's dry if it's not wet or it's wet if it's not dry. You know what I mean? Like this, this is a way that we can use to, to understand something, what it is, based on what it isn't. So now as we try to identify what it looks like, when we're both full of grace and full of truth, let's see some examples of what it looks like when we have all of only one or only the other. Here's what it looks like when we have no grace and all truth. When we're full of truth but devoid of grace, it's called legalism. The New Testament has several examples of legalism. The Judaizers in Rome and Galatia, basically people who, who said, yeah, you're, you're being offered this grace, but there's not enough rules attached to it. We got to follow the old traditions and customs and extras that have been piled on. They were really high on truth, really low in grace. Early churches in Asia Minor, if you've, if you've read or heard of uh, the, the letters in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uh, he was writing to a people that were really high in truth, but they were really low when it came to grace, and probably because they thought it had to be an either-or mentality. Some of the early churches in Jerusalem, they were trying to clamp down. It was scary how fast that the, the religion, the, the, the followers of Jesus were growing. And, and so they had to figure it out. Where, where does... Where does truth interact with grace? And if you're paying close attention, you might have noticed that probably, I think, the primary example of legalism in the New Testament is missing on this slide, but it won't be soon. The Pharisees. This group, more than any other throughout history, I think, is the one that looks like the textbook example of legalism. I can kind of understand where they were coming from, because they believed that, that God had taken away the promised land from them. And, and that he was going to be bringing a promised Messiah 
to come and, and to set them back, to set them free, to take them back into the promise that they had been given to, to let them come into their inheritance. But here's where they got it wrong. They thought that the only way to usher in Jesus coming back, well, they didn't know it was Jesus, but the Messiah coming was that they had to adhere to God's laws flawlessly. So if the line painted by Moses was here, not only were they super harsh in making sure that didn't come close to here. They said, let's take like six steps back and make some rules that'll keep us from that line too. And they became so obsessed and understandably so. If you thought that the, the salvation of your people was dependent on your morality, wouldn't you think, yeah, <laughs> I would be kind of weird too. But they were full of truth and almost completely devoid of grace. I, uh, I grew up at, at the end of the uh, flannel graph era. And if you know what that looks like, it was like a piece of felt. And you had some little like puppet things that were wearing robes. And like this shiny one was Jesus. And here's the disciples. They were a little bearded. And then you knew that there were Pharisees when they had angry eyebrows. Right? That was like the, the determining factor. Oh, that's a Pharisee. I see his eyebrows. Like I used to think that if I saw a painting of a Pharisee, it, would have, it had to have angry eyebrows. But, uh, but I remember like having this like guttural reaction when I would see them come on to the board. And it was like, we're supposed to boo and hiss at these guys, right? Because they were constantly in opposition with Jesus. They were, they were completely responsible for some of the events that came about when it came to his crucifixion. But here's, here's, let's see what Jesus said to these people who idolized the truth while living lives devoid of grace. In Matthew 23, there's seven woes that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, to these people that were all truth, no grace. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Now, I'm, not, I'm no chef, but I at least know a little bit about the spices. I've been uh, known to be sent into the spice rack every once in a while to grab something, and I have to read the labels and stuff. I get in trouble when they've worn off. Um, but I know that mint is pretty small. I know that dill is even smaller, and I know that cumin is like this yellowish powder, right? Like if you're trying to count individual things. And here's the Pharisees were so much about the truth and so little about the grace that that they would go into their spice racks because the Old Testament told them to give 10% of, uh, of what they had been given from God. And they were like fiddling through with their mint and dill and cumin. So this is the, this is the attitude of the heart because they, again, remember, adherence to the law perfectly, adherence to the truth is what's gonna bring the Messiah about. But he says this, you give a 10th, of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, some of the ways that we show grace. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat when you're going through your cumin, but you swallow something as big as a camel when you ignore grace. So like I said, as a kid, I look at the flannel graph. I'm like, nope, not going to be a Pharisee. 
I'm not like super smart, but I'm good enough to know that's not what I want to be. And so what happened in, in my mind and in my heart and in my understanding is that I thought, okay, well, if that pendulum is over here, I'm gonna go completely over over to here. And if I'm going to err on one side or the other, I, I know I don't want to be a Pharisee. But sometimes that swing to the other side is equally harmful and extreme. Here's what happens when instead of being full of truth, devoid of grace, here's what happens when we instead live lives filled with grace, but ignore the truth. It's called hedonism. It's the mentality that that we're basically just animals. Whatever feels right is right. And the way that this made its way into the church is, is that people said, you know what? Jesus came and he talked about grace and he bought us with his blood and we've been forgiven. We've been given this inheritance forever. And so let's just, like, it doesn't matter. The truth doesn't matter about his direction for the rest of our lives. We're covered in grace. There was even this weird thing that, Paul talks about in Romans about people saying like, hey, I'm going to sin more so that I can understand grace more, right? But that's called hedonism. And just like with legalism, there are plenty of examples of it in the New Testament. In Acts, the early church, some of the new converts struggled with this because that was the culture they lived in. In Corinth, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, like some of the weird stuff that they had going on, Paul tells them like, hey, you're, you're doing awesome when it comes to grace, but we got to talk about the other stuff that's happening among your people. And actually the whole reason why we're talking about any of this is because in 2 Peter, that's, that's the mentality that had made its way into the church. This, I, this, this, lean this bent towards hedonism. Basically, some of the, some of the teachers in that church were saying that, you know, it's been decades since Jesus uh, went back into heaven. He said he's going to come back. I'm not sure he's going to, but I know about this grace thing, so let's be free. Let's be free in Jesus. But let's look at what Peter says about this group of people who promoted grace at the expense of truth. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. I want to pause there for just, just a quick second. Right? They were saying, hey, Jesus set us free, and is that not true? Absolutely it is. But he said, if you don't take God's truth as pointing us to a better way of, of living, if we say, all that matters is grace, there's no such thing as truth, are you really free? Are you really free when you are addicted? Are you really free when the logical conclusion of what happens if you continue down this path of going your own way instead of God's is brokenness in your relationships, of hardships financially, of hurt, of broke? Are you really free? He says they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Let's keep going. 
If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. You're not going to see that embroidered on a pillow. It's not a pretty picture when we live lives of grace at the expense of truth. The whole chapter in 2 Peter 2 warns about the consequences both now and eternally for those who live this way. So remember, when it comes to the relationship between grace and truth, it's not either or. It's both and. Because, and this, there's not a spot on your notes for this, but if you want to make one, this might be a good one to, to latch on to. Grace without truth isn't grace at all. And truth without grace is a lie. Grace without truth isn't grace at all, and truth without grace is a lie. We think, man, I want to be a gracious person. And, and that means i got to kind of like hide or ignore or excuse the truth. But when you live that way, it's just putting a band-aid, a temporary fix on a longer-term solution. When you punch somebody in the face with the truth with little to no grace, that's not like Jesus either. Grace without truth isn't grace at all, and truth without grace is a lie. So let's move into, into this part where we take what we've just talked about and kind of like let it sink into our hearts. The truth is that we all have a tendency to lean one way or the other when it comes to legalism and hedonism. So I want to I ask you for a second, you don't have to like say it out loud, but think about it, maybe circle it, maybe put a star, put your finger on it, just make a mental note, whatever you want to do. Which one of these looks more like you? I'm not saying, I don't, I don't know of anybody in this room that I would say is like 100% one or the other, but I think we all tend to lean one way or the other. I, I know that I certainly do. I think it's in identifying our weaknesses that we can partner with God in, become, in becoming stronger with the area that we need the most. So whichever one of these is more naturally you, I have some simple advice from the Word of God this morning. For those of you who might find yourself to be more naturally legalistic. I want to say that being right doesn't excuse ungracious behavior. It breaks my heart, and I think sometimes it breaks God's too. When I see people that are like condemning people to hell and almost dancing about it. You know what I mean? I don't think that that's, that's, that's either or. It's not both and. Being right doesn't excuse ungracious behavior. And if you're naturally hedonistic, here's the advice that I have for you from Scripture as well. It's not gracious to ignore the truth. Jesus himself said, I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. I could go on and on and on and on about ways that God and truth are connected. We should embrace the truth 
And, and for those of you who, who maybe naturally lean this way, I want, I want to just make it abundantly clear that to be full of grace and devoid of truth, it's not actually gracious. It's temporary. So I have two things uh, that, that we, could, we could do like as we, as we kind of leave from here. I want to share some, some ways that we might be able to take what we've learned in our heads and uh, maybe processed for a, for a couple minutes in our hearts. And how does that work out into our, our hands? One way that we could, we could do that is by growing in our knowledge of the truth. We have lots of ways that we're able to do that here at Plum Creek. Uh, we have ways to get you plugged in, ways to share with you. Uh, one thing, like, don't ever just take for, for granted that what we're saying is, is true, right? I, I believe that it is, but we, every week, and Doug does an awesome job, and he's really particular about this, making sure that the things that he shares about on the weekly reading plan on your bulletin or online, or we can, we can get it to you, however, like, you can go through and see where he's drawing all of this stuff. Same way with, with this week. You can go through and you can look and you can see where, where did I pull this stuff from. Grow in your knowledge of the truth. There are other ways we'll talk about in a second. But here's the other way that you can apply this to your life. Let your knowledge change your behavior. Because it doesn't matter if you know something. Like, God's not going to, we're not going to get to heaven and, and be like, okay, God, I've got my answer sheet here. Would you... Would you check it and make sure it was, it was right? He's going to look at our lives and he'll see the things that we have and haven't done, the ways that we've brought him glory, not just the ideas that we've had in our heads, but what have we, what have we done about it? So like I said, it, it doesn't matter for us to spend you know, 25 minutes talking together, uh, looking at Scripture, maybe being touched uh, it, it, on an, on an inward level as we reflect and being able to see what it is that, that God might want to do in our hearts if we don't do anything about it. So I, we wanted to make it as clear and simple and easy as possible. If you need some direction on what it is that your next step might be, uh, in your bulletin there, there's a, a QR code down at the bottom. Or if you don't have a bulletin, that's cool. We've got it right up here. You can watch this uh, broadcast after the fact and scan it. We have very specific ways that we can help you connect. We can help you do these two things. We can help you grow in your knowledge of the truth. There are Bible studies that meet on a weekly basis. We have small groups. We have those reading plans. We have online resources that we would be more than happy to share as people continue to learn and grow in the truth. We have mentorship programs. We have service opportunities both here in the church and also out with the community if you need to stretch that muscle of showing grace to others. Grace changes us from the inside out. Truth leads us to a better way of life. And grace plus truth, full of grace, full of truth, that's when we become more like Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this morning and a chance to be able to, uh, to just come together and, and sing your praise, to remember the worth that you have because of who you are. We thank you for your word and the way that it guides us and leads us. We thank you for your grace that we build our lives upon.
We thank you that you want what's best for us, that it's not a do this or else, but it's a do this because I love you and know what's best for you. May we walk in your truth. May we live it out. May we show others by the way that we live, by the people that we are, by the countenance of our faces, by the actions of our hands, by the warmth of our hearts. May people see who you are and what you're about. God, thank you that you change us, that you shape us, that you love us, and that you lead us to become more and more like you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.